the back end of our industry is still woefully sort of behind. And it presents opportunities for firms like Apex to step in. I mean, I know these companies. I know what's happening. I know the industry. And so for me, sort of leaning into things that I know and understand, decent percentage of my portfolio is in those types of companies. Every one of the leaders, especially in the technology department at Apex, is, okay, how do you going to eliminate friction, obviously, for clients, but also how are we going to become double the size with the same number of people. Most people are focusing on, okay, what does the front end look like? My focus has been exclusively for the last 20 plus years on how do we take sort of friction out of the back end of our industry. Hi, my name is Jason Rasnick, the CEO of Benzinga, and welcome to the Raz Report. As always, before we kick things off, I want to quickly tell you about what Benzinga is. Before I started Benzinga in 2010, there were very few places to get real-time information on financial markets. I thought it was unfair that Wall Street had access to this information before the average Joe investor. So I created Benzinga to level the playing field for you, the retail investor. Benzinga is for the people and by the people. Now, let's dive into the show. Welcome to this edition of the Raz Report. Very excited to have a longtime friend, an important guest to the trading industry, investing industry. We have the CEO of Apex, Bill Capuzzi. What's up, man? Excited to have you on today. Yeah, it's psyched to be here. Good to see you. Yes, I mean you're you're kind of like the the Intel inside commercial, which you guys don't do commercials. Is that a good analogy? It is. I mean, think about Apex as sort of the platform or the man or woman behind the curtain, right? So, uh, you know, today we enable close to 300 different brands, different companies, purely on a B2B basis. And it's it's a platform that allows them to offer investing pretty simply. So we wake up today, we've got a little over 25 million ending investors that, that leverage Apex, like I said, across close to 300 different institutions. And so if, the, if, you, if you go down, then their trading goes down, like they won't be able to make trades or you know. Yeah, exactly. So everything from opening an account, funding the account, right? So taking money out of your, your, your traditional bank and put it into an investment account, all the trading, all the settling of trades, all the confirms, all the statements, all the tax reports, all the stuff that happens behind the scenes kind of packaged in a really cool fintech modern bow is probably the best way to describe us. So really, couldn't you almost enable anyone to start their own brokerage? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I mean, you know, sort of over the last few years, you know, that we've added a bunch to Apex. One part of adding to Apex is just that notion of, okay, we'll also take on the regulatory responsibility to the extent that there's a brand, and let's pick Twitter, uh, wants to offer investing. There's a bunch of really sophisticated APIs, a bunch of SDKs, and we take on the responsibility uh, to, to sort of enable an end customer to actually use, again, I'll use Twitter as a good example, uh, to offer an investment solution. So, so will you guys be the ones to enable <laughs> Twitter to do that? Well, we sort of are now, right? So the press came out not that long ago that eToro is, is, you know, is sort of partnered up from a client perspective. And Apex, like most fintechs out there, is a sort of, like I said, the man or woman behind the curtains for eToro. Uh, and so today we are powering 
it's still small. It's it's growing, but still pretty small. But we're powering sort of Twitter's sort of foray into investing. Okay, and we're going to go more into how Apex plays a role in, in an important place. We're doing this fintech power hour theme where we have you know from public to Robinhood to Ameritrade, uh, Fidelity, every every brokerage on. But I'm going to go. I'm going to skip um, trading stuff for a second. Is it true that you originally wanted to be a doctor and worked <laughs> as an environmental scientist? Like, is this true? Yes, that is true. I have taken a circuitous path to, to sitting here with you, Jason, in 2023. So, yeah, I, I, I went to school and uh, had every plans on being a doctor back many moons ago. Uh, and the way to get my med requirements done was to get you know a degree. And, and at the school I went to, Wesleyan University, the best path to getting those requirements done was environmental science. So I was the proud owner of a BA from Wesleyan in environmental science back in the 90s. Where was the school located? It's in Connecticut. Okay, so this was like, this was like, you have a BA in that and this, so that wasn't your passion, but it was part well, of- Well, so what happened was, you know, it's like, look, I. I I had every design of going to become a doctor, but you know, I, yeah. I grew up in a family that didn't have it a lot. And so I came out of college with a mountain of debt and the notion of taking on more debt, you know, you know, four more years of school and then residency. And it was, was daunting, right? I couldn't, I couldn't afford to pay the bills I had much less take on more. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to go get a job. I'll put a couple bucks in the bank. And then I'll double back around on the, the med school thing. Um, uh, probably, I don't know how many folks that are on this call listen to this, actually environmental scientists. But let me just tell you, they don't make a lot of money, Jason. So I didn't, I didn't make any dent in any of the debt I had in the two and a half years that I did it. And I definitely learned that it was not my calling in life. Um, and But in that time, kind of sort of jump. Um, I had an opportunity to go get my MBA for free, which again was really attractive to me. Uh, so I went to work at Rutgers, and one of the things working at Rutgers, uh, you got to go to school for free. So I got my MBA two years, uh, and um, my first kind of connection into this industry, my roommate from Wesleyan's dad worked at DLJ, investment bank, way back when. Uh, and said, hey, look, you got your MBA. You know, we got this MBA program. Why don't you come over and, and you know, sort of do this, see whether or not maybe finance is some, some, something interesting for you. And as they say, sort of the rest is history, right? Um, the connection to what I do today, just to kind of, you know, double click, DLJ way back when owned Pershing. And for those that are listening, understand Pershing is sort of one of the original custodians out there. And at the end of the MBA rotation at DLJ, I was placed at Pershing in Jersey City. And I remember it distinctly because I thought, what did I do to deserve getting sort of banished to the bowels of our industry? But um, what I learned is that the bowels of our industry are pretty messed up uh, and sort of made it a mission in life to, to fix the sort of the back end of the inchworm, so to speak. So you got, so you sort of got to learn it a little bit while you're at DLJ. Well, I spent I spent almost nine years at Pershing, and so that's I learned deep. 
I learned the, the, the business from the bottom up at Pershing. And, and I learned, you know, this is back when we were still in fractions, trading fractions. Uh, this is back when it was T plus five settlement. Wow. So you're five. talking about, you're talking to, and, and everything was paper based or piles of paper everywhere at Pershing back then. Um, and, you know, even today, you know, th this is how I got this passion. It's like, hey, there's a better way. There was a better way of doing this than the way this industry works. And the problem is, and, you know, it even holds true today. Most people are focused on the front end. Most people are focusing on, okay, what does the front end look like? My focus has been, you know, exclusively for the last 20 plus years on how do we take sort of friction out of the back end of our industry. So over the years, you guys are providing just the brokerages. Have you yeah. expanded where you're going to insurance companies now? and other such um, places. Yeah, look, I, I, so, um, you know, the company, think of, think of Apex now um, as sort of a two-sided coin. We're, we're exclusively focused on retail investing, but the, the two-sided coin is on one side, Jason, is, okay, we're gonna continue to focus on custody clearing, doing amazing things, applying balance sheet and doing custody and clearing. On the other side is SaaS. So um, we've almost exclusively focused on just being a custodian. The go forward for the company is to take the different components of Apex. So think account opening, funding, think cost basis, things tax, tax reporting, and actually selling them as SaaS components um, you know, to different. Now you have a different audience. These are big brokers like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, uh, Wells Fargo, LPL, um, as software versus what we have historically done is really kind of just focused on the fintech community as, um, as a custodian. Um, and so we, we acquired a few companies in the last couple of years. Um, we continue to build product, um, obviously to support the custodial business. But now what we're doing is we're taking those same components, either buy or build and going to market as individual SaaS solutions. Got it. Got it. And so how has that gone? Like building that or like how? I mean, it's, it's great. You know, look, as you know, the bar is pretty low in this industry as it relates to sort of the back end of, of our industry. Right. So, you know, I said about T5, you know, look, we're still T3, right? It's just stupid. Think about no, it. Now we're going to T1. I thought we we're going to T2, but we're still at T3. Yeah, we're T3. We're going to T1 and, you know, inside of the next... Uh, you know, in the next supposedly next year, we got we got work to do to get to T1. But even that, think about that, right? Which is, it's 2024. The best we can do is settle a trade next day, right? And compare that to and contrast that to the crypto market where everything sells real time. It's like, and the reason for it is the back end of our industry is still woefully sort of behind. It's batch based. It's COBOL code. And it presents opportunities for firms like Apex to step in um, either as the custodian for folks like Twitter or, you know, PayPal or you know, Apple or eToro, mm -hmm. um, but also just as, you know, selling software into the sort of bigger, slower moving firms like LPL or Wells Fargo to help them modernize. And so that's where you guys, how the industry is changing and evolving. Um, but I like, okay, so... 
so many questions in terms of uh, you're now talking about 24 hour trading, like you guys announced something. Is that yes? Is yeah, that we, we, is that or is that? Yeah. Go ahead. Look, you know, you, you have a diverse audience on here. So here's what I'll tell you. So, yeah, we're we're, we're offering 24 by five trading. It's live. People can buy Tesla, you know, 2 a.m. Eastern um, to the extent that they want to. Reality is, and, and you know this, Jason, like liquidity is not amazing. It's not the same level of liquidity that, that you know, if it's if it's 940 in the morning, you know, Eastern. Um, but, you know, it's a product because you have casual investors and I'll say investors versus traders. But you have people that that we support that, you know, just want to own the stock. They want to open long term. They're out to dinner with their friends and someone talks about you know, generative AI and talks about some new company that's that's public, they can go on through Apex and buy, you know, $150 worth of NVIDIA uh, at nine o'clock at night. And the notion there is, look, you know, why do we why do we have 930 to four? You know, like what's what's so magical about 930 to four? A lot of it has to do with just liquidity, obviously. But again, liquidity begets liquidity. Um, there's a lot more activity in that 24 by 5 than you would think. Um, I would tell you that the vast majority of it's coming from overseas today. Interesting. So yeah. People like, that want to be in their time zone to make trades. Even though the liquidity is not there, does every order have to be a limit order in that after hours? Yes. Yep. So yep. every order has to be a limit order. Okay. Speaking of that, now we're going to go to actual trades. Would you would you suggest for people to do market orders or limit orders? Not in the after hours, just during the day. Yeah, limit limit orders. I mean, look, you know, um, you have casual investors. So it depends on what they're trying to accomplish. But look, you know, as, as a proper investor, it's just prudent for folks to use limit orders versus market orders, right? The way that the market works um, you know, especially because most retail orders are going to market makers. It's just a prudent uh, sort of way of trading. Even if you're the casual investor to use limits over market, it just creates protection for, for the investor from a price standpoint and from a liquidity standpoint that, you know, for folks that are still putting market orders in, you, know, you can make it a marketable limit, but it makes sense for a lot of reasons to add a limit to that to that order. Okay, we're with Bill Capuzzi, CEO of Apex, the Intel inside for the brokerage industry. Um, we're on the RAS report. A question that people want me to ask, and I don't know if you have any because given the position you have, are there any stocks that you like to trade or invest in? Oh, gosh. I mean, right now it's been fun. There's there's a few that I've been trading around. Um, I've been trading around Coinbase. Uh, I've been trading around Hood. <laughs> Not surprised. No. Um, I've been trading a company called Forge. Uh, so most in the fintech industry, Jason, it's um, it's a company that uh, that focuses on private investments. Okay. So they're democratizing, you know, access to private placements. Um, the the common theme there is invest in what you know. Invest, you know. Let's go back to Peter Lynch back when. The same concept for me. I know these companies. I know what's happening. I know the industry. 
And so for me, um, sort of leaning into things that I know and understand, I know that obviously the industry well. Uh, so companies like Coinbase, Schwab, Goldman, uh, Hood, you know, Robinhood, um, a decent percentage of my portfolio is in those types of companies. Now, you have a unique vantage point of Robinhood because some would say <laughs> that Robinhood, Robinhood wouldn't exist yeah. if Apex didn't enable it to start trading. What would you say? Yeah, that's the, you and I talked about this a while back. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, if Vlad was on, he would say the same thing because you had, you know, two young kids in a strip mall way back when looking to do something disruptive and what they needed was a good partner that was willing to take the risk. Um, you know, zero commission, we're going to democratize the world. We're going to offer zero options. You know, I think Schwab gets a lot of credit for going zero commission, but you know, the real OG of sort of pulling the plug on the industry was Robinhood. 100%. And they couldn't have done that if, if it weren't for Apex. So Bill, did you get nervous? Cause you already had clients that existed that weren't zero commission. Was this something where you're like, okay, I'm about to have a moment where like the Ubers of the world comes into the taxi cab industry. Um, yeah, look, uh, so there's obviously from that point, you know, the rest of the industries, specifically apex in client base all started to go zero commission. And, um, you know, we built a platform for scale. Right. So, you know, the commission side of it, Jason, for brokers was, you know, I don't know, was, let's call it 10% of the revenue. So like, OK, give up 10% of the revenue to be disruptive and create something different was worth the bet. Right. And so it was certainly a bet. We took stock in Robinhood, which, you know, played out well and it didn't play out well and it's playing a little bit better now. Um, but, you know, had it not been for us to lean in and sort of allow for opening accounts with no paperwork, zero commission, connecting dots between crypto and, and, and equities, zero commission on options. Uh, you know, I think the industry would be a very different place today. 100%. And, you know, I think that brought a lot of innovation and it probably enabled a lot more people to trade and invest. They don't want to have that toll booth to make a trade every time. Like when you go a bridge, uh, at least I'm in Michigan, go to Chicago, there's a toll booth. And, uh, you know, it's kind of annoying. So this enables well, action. Well, right? think about it, right? So I, I'll speak for myself. You and I are close-ish in age. Think back to, you know, when I was, my son, I got a 21-year-old son. My son's 20, when I was 21 years old, one, there wasn't anywhere to go. You would place in trades over the phone. But then there was like the DLJ Direct, the, the, the original E-Trade, the original Schwab. You were paying... 20 bucks a trade, right? So, and there was no such thing as fractional shares and you were trading in fractions. And so you had these wide spreads, you were paying 20 bucks for a trade. And so let's just say you had $200 put to work. You know, you were paying 10% of your, you know, of the trade. Today it's zero, it, there's fractional shares so people can buy $200 worth of a stock. Um, and the spreads are better than they've ever been, right? You know, there's a lot of people knocking on sort of, you know, PFOF and what happens in retail um, execution. The spreads are tighter than they've ever been. And the liquidity, the depth of liquidity in the market today, as it relates to what you know, comes from the retail, um, you know, the wholesalers, 
is better than it's ever been in the history of retail investing. For sure. I mean, when I sold Amazon shares in 2001, I sold them at $10. There was 20% commission. So I ended up at $7.90. And it's crazy, right? It was absolutely crazy. So um, you, you mentioned a little stake in, in Robinhood. Um, was it hard for you when Robinhood went to their own clearing versus using you guys? You know, look, uh, you know, I'm still good friends with, with Vlad today. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, it played out in a public forum. I think, you know, they had lots and lots of problems. I think they've sorted a lot of them since then. But, you know, early days of Robinhood trying to do this themselves was probably the best commercial for Apex, which is, hey, it's really hard. There's a reason why we're a one of one. Jason, we think about, okay, competitively, people are like, okay, who competes with Apex? Right, Schwab, Fidelity, big these big slow-moving companies. It's hard to do what we do, um, and you know, in the case of Robinhood, they ran into some issues around sort of operational excellence that created problems around the meme stocks. Um, probably the best public commercial for why to continue to partner with Apex and not try and do this yourselves. At some point. Firms get to a certain size where it just makes sense financially to go and do this, which again is part of the reason we built out the SaaS side of, of Apex, which is okay, today, if Robinhood wanted to go self-clearing, they could acquire you know, hardened technology from Apex to help them get from here to there. So you could enable that part, that's why the SaaS side is like a new part of your business. So that's right. For, for public and other companies that you guys work with, you can enable where they can do their own soft clear and use less of your staff and more of their own staff, basically. Well, and, and their balance sheet. I mean, the one part that, you know, it's a big decision for them. It's like, okay, you're no longer leveraging Apex's $700 million on the balance sheet. You're going to have to come up with your own. Um, that's a big decision to make. You know, the trade-off is, okay, you control more of the economics, but um, it also comes with all the risk. So, you know, the thing that people don't, especially now with where the SEC and FINRA is, um, you know, we take on all of the, you know, by and large, most of the, I should say, the you know, regulatory burden. And it's it's tough. It's a tough, it's tough sledding to make sure you dot I's and cross T's from a regulatory standpoint. But you seem very chill. You got the art painting behind you. You don't seem, you don't seem <laughs> stressful. You look like you're ready for a golf and a golf lesson. <laughs> You seem like you got this all under control. How many people work at Apex? So we're now approaching 800 people, oh, uh, which, okay. you know, is pretty nuts. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, we've tripled the company in the past a uh, little over four years. Um, uh, it's still, it, it's still a small company. I mean, I would call it a growth company and, and, you know, I don't have any design or aspirations for this to be 10,000 people. I think it's actually a measure of our success that the footprint from a people standpoint, despite the fact we do hundreds of millions of trades, we support 20, almost 26 million end investors and we only have 800 people here. Um, that's, that's a good thing. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, given what you guys do and the Intel inside analogy, I'm sitting here thinking, hmm. Wouldn't APEX be a great acquisition candidate for like a Charles Schwab or Fidelity? And you get M&A overtures a lot. 
We do, yeah. Um, Ready to break something. And, and yeah, I mean, look, it, it, yeah, that, that that's kind of one cohort of folks that, that comes to Apex. Um, uh, you know, look, the reality is, Jason, you know, I'm, I think I and the, you know, the, the owners, Peak Six owners, Matt and Jenny, we're long-term greedy is the way I think, the, the way we like to think about it is we got a lot still to do, right? And what I worry about, you know, is one of the names you just mentioned is like you get sucked into a big company, you know, you lose, the industry loses, you know, and it loses because, you know, in, inevitably some of the DNA, some of the mojo of Apex will just, you know, dissipate into a large organization. So we're making money. Um, we don't need to sell. We don't want to sell. We think taking on those guys um, and making this industry great, you know, eliminating all the friction and being sort of the Schwab of 2029, that's sort of the path for us as a company. Interesting. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, got, you, you have a company that's building and it's great. You probably get acquisition candidates because like, you know, one of the things that I've written down here, you have less employees and like some of your customers like all combined and you're able to get all this stuff done. Is I didn't ask you, but is AI playing a role into Apex yeah. business? I didn't ask that. And I know people like to talk about it. Is it there yet with you? Yeah, guys? for sure. Yeah. In pretty much every aspect. So let's just, you know, um, the fraud detection, big part. You know, we've built generative AI tools around fraud. Um, not too surprising. There's more fraud today around money moving in and out, around ACATs, around opening up accounts. Um, fraud detection, the amount of money that's lost in our industry around fraud is pretty staggering. So um, we have a pretty good team of data scientists and we have obviously a ton of data about people. Um, so taking advantage of some of the large language models and applying AI just makes sense. Then there's stuff, you know, um, around people and, and, you know, think about the 800 people uh, just creating efficiency, right? Where I can eliminate bodies because as an example, customer service, uh, you can leverage generative AI tools, to eliminate a bunch of the rote stuff that's happening. Um, you know, the, you know, sort of generic kind of basic stuff around the company. So the task, the challenge to every, every one of the leaders, especially in the technology department at Apex is, okay, how do you gonna, how are you gonna apply, um, eliminate friction, obviously for clients, but also how are we gonna become double the size with the same number of people? And Probably the number one way we're going to get there is to continue to sort of deploy generative AI inside of the firm. It is crazy what has taken place, um, and especially we're from a content company with the largest vendor of financial news to the North American brokerage space. And we have, you know, tested it and seen it and it's a different world. I mean, you, you could, we could have someone who's remote write articles, but they were using AI the whole time. And it's, it's a different world out there. What has happened in the last, I don't know, three months. And my kids, you know, I have a 13, 11 and six, what they can do with AI. They had to create a PowerPoint for civil war. And my daughter showed me that she can hit three buttons and have one done. It's really <laughs> unbelievable, you know? Well, you know, I'll give you, so I tasked everyone in the company, um, you know, what I said is, hey, if you think 
Bill Capuzzi is going to walk around Apex and have AI pixie dusk, and I'm going to sprinkle it over your head and sort of, you know, sort of decree AI within different areas. It's just not the way it's going to work. Um, and I have, I have a gentleman who works in one of our data science teams, and he had a particular challenge. Um, his challenge was he, he didn't know the holidays at Apex. And make a very long story short, he basically took our employee handbook, our uh, WSPs, our sort of standard operating procedures. He loaded them all into uh, into AI, into you know, generative AI model, um, built a plug-in within Slack, uh, and we're about to roll it out to all employees, which is ask any question you want about what is the per diem policy at Apex? What's the holiday schedule? Uh, you know, what are our typical hours? What's the addresses of our company? Um, and those little things, you think about little things like that, that would typically be a question in Slack to somebody at HR that would have to answer it, right? And you multiply that times a thousand and that creates real impact, right? So it's a million different small paper cuts, but they all that, add up to something pretty massive. That's an amazing story. That's an amazing story. This is That will be one of the headlines that come out of this interview. Using AI to make your internal company more sufficient. Here's a real life example how you did it. That is- Yeah, no and by the way, he, he, like I said, it wasn't like I beat him over the head and said, hey, you know, figure out how to do this. He had a particular challenge, took it on himself, got on a Zoom with me and said, hey, here's what I did. It was like, this is exactly what we need to do. Was he a developer? Over and over and over. Was he a developer? Uh, he worked in our data science department. It's amazing. All right, we have two more questions. So I'm not even gonna sure. ask about AI potential. I'm gonna switch to, um, what is the best part of, uh, of your day working at Apex? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's two things. One is I'm in, I'm in uh, Austin today, Jason, and uh, lots of people say this, but I really mean it. It's the people. I, I really enjoy, I hated the pandemic uh, for all, lots of reasons, but one of the reasons I hated not connecting with people. Uh, and so, I'm, you know, I'm in Austin. I was in Chicago a couple of days this week, and then I just flew down here last night. Um, I have, I don't know, there's about 100 people in the Austin office here. Average age is about 24. Uh, and it's pretty fun to hang out with a bunch of young folks and talk about kind of how we're going to continue to disrupt. The second thing I'd say is the clients. And it's fun to go out and say, okay, how do we make your life better? Right. What else could we be doing? You know, this is what sort of spurred the 24 by five trading. We're about to roll out fractional fixed income trading. Um, those all come from, you know, good relationships, tight relationships. I'm interested, type relationships I'm interested in this fixed income because fixed income is still 20 years ago. I mean, I'm making phone calls. I own a lot of T-bills and municipals and all this stuff, but it's, it's nowhere efficient. Nowhere efficient. Yeah, open an account on, on with one of Apex's clients and you'll get a much better experience inside of probably the next 30 days. Dying so, to see. I, I would say 70% of my portfolio, I no, probably 80%. Is T bills and municipals. Five percent is the other stuff. You know. Yeah. Look, it's it's you know this is this is what we do. It's like okay, how do you democratize? How do you lower the barriers? How do you make it really simple so that Jason can go on and said you know like buying T bills pretty hard to do, right? Um, go on, 
put in a thousand dollars and buy a fractional T bill, you know, with a limit order, just like you'd buy an equity and get the execution right away, right? No request for quote, none of the nonsense that happens. You know, it, like you said, fixed income is still in the seventies. It is. Um, and so we found, you know, sort of a path to create a much more seamless experience for this, John Q public. This one, I'll believe it when I see it. Usually I'll say, I believe, you know, cause okay. like I've looked I'm going to tell you, so offline, I'll tell you which client to, to sign up for sign, open an account. You'll tell me and that. I want the feedback from you as to okay. that experience versus what you're doing today. Okay. All right. And again, we're with Bill Capuzzi, CEO of Apex. Maybe you'll get a team at the, we have a future of digital assets and then a Benzinga FinTech deal day this year in, in New York. I don't know if you Jason, I always come and support your events. So I expect to be there. All right. So and for those out there, if you're invited or you can get there, make sure you get there because they're great events. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Okay. Now, the final question. What is was your first or your worst job or it can be first and worst job? This is a question. Uh, they're actually the same, actually. Um, so first job was environmental scientist, and it was definitely the worst job. And so you can imagine I'm this young kid. Um, uh, and my first job was I was in at the Alcoa plant in a town called Messina, New York, which was as far north in our country as you can get. OK, I worked the night shift. I stood out in the cold with, you know, and took groundwater samples at two o'clock in the morning in, you know, 10 degree weather. Wow. I just, I still remember today, Jason, I remember standing out there saying, good God, I went to four years of college for this. Like, what am I doing? So you're pitch black, freezing my ass off saying, it's gotta be something better than this. How long were you doing that for? Uh, that was I, that literally, and oh, by the way, I had a whole bunch of buddies that were going to go backpack across Europe. Um, I didn't go because I got this job and had to start. So this was four days after I graduated. Uh, and that job in, in that particular job doing that particular thing at night was six months. Holy shit. You may win the record. Tom Sladenoff, he, um, he had, uh, I don't know if he did gar was a garbage man or something bad. It was his first thing. He had a crazy first one, but yours think may take the topper. So you didn't go on a European trip with your friends after graduation. They all went and had an amazing time. And I, here I am working the night shift, taking groundwater samples. We have, I wasn't taking groundwater samples, but we have that in common. We both didn't do this amazing senior trip that we should have done and wish we can go back 20 years and or 25 years or 30 years and uh, do that because that is something that we missed. Yeah, missed, so. exactly. All right. Well, I'm going to think, I mean, there's, we have way more questions we could ask, but we'll ask them in person at our next event. Um, we were with the CEO of Apex, Bill Capuzzi, been doing this forever. Um, other companies have been in the space, um, Pember Penson and, you know, Apex has stood through the, stood through time. And if you're starting a brokerage or insurance company looking to engage in trading or investing, Apex should be the first one you call. APEX, um, they have it all. And they have a big team that can take care of you. So thank you again. Right. Find, find me on, on LinkedIn. If someone wants to reach out, um, William Capuzzi, last name C-A-P-U-Z-Z-I. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. If people want to reach out, I'm happy to try and help. There you go. All right. Well, thank you again, Bill Capuzzi, for coming on the Raz Report. All right, brother. Good to see you.